Thanks so much to Bernadette and the team for leading us in worship this morning. So this morning we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Isaiah. Um, we're several weeks in now, and I thought maybe it would be a good idea just to uh, look at where, we've, where we are, where we've been, where we're going. Um, Ellis Andre sent me this uh, very helpful outline of the book of Isaiah, As you can see on this outline, we've spent a fair bit of time in that first block looking at prophecies against Judah, and this morning we're going to move into the second block, um, just the next slide there, prophecies against uh, the other nations. Um, We've begun by looking at the, the first block, and we've seen God's message on Judah. We've seen that God has said that because the nation has continued to reject him and leave him, Uh, He is now going to hand them over to their enemies, first of all to the Assyrians and then to the Babylonians, that they are going to go uh, into exile. But now uh, God addresses the other nations because uh, although God has a special relationship with Israel, God is still sovereign over all nations. He is at work within them. We know that God has revealed himself to them through nature We know that some of those nations originally were part of the nations of Genesis, which God addressed personally. God has been at work in them individually, and God's standards for righteousness and justice are worldwide. And so he can call these nations to account. Uh, And in these chapters, we read God's words of judgment on Babylon and Assyria and the Philistines and the Moabites and the Syrians. Somebody asked me this week if uh, I was going to look at God's message to each one of these different nations, because there's lots of them, or whether I was just going to look at one nation and say, ditto for Egypt, ditto for Assyria, ditto for Tyre. Well, it's something like the second option. We'll probably look at just two messages to these different nations. And this morning, we're going to look at God's message to the nation of Babylon. Uh, We get it in chapters 13 and 14, and uh, again in chapter 21. But we're going to focus on that famous poem in Isaiah 14. I've chosen the passage because it's probably familiar to us uh, and also because it's got a a very important message for us. So as I said, uh, the message begins in chapter 13, um, and God says that although he's going to use Babylon to punish his people, uh, the Babylonians uh, would come and destroy Jerusalem, take God's people into exile. But due to arrogance, and cruelty, Babylon itself will be judged by God. So chapter 13 and verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. God would destroy Babylon and bring his people out of Babylon. Just as years earlier, he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Let's have a look, though, in chapter 14 from verse 1. The Lord will have compassion on Judah. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And the house of Israel will possess the nations as men servants and maidservants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. 
The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down the peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the pine trees and the cedars of Lebanon exult over you and say, Now that you have been laid low, no woodsman comes to cut us down. The grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who are leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones, all those who are kings over the nations. They will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You've become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth? And made kingdoms tremble, the man who made the whole world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let its captives go home. All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb, but you're cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You're covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial. For you've destroyed your land and killed your people. The offspring of the wicked will never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his sons for the sins of their forefathers. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will cut off from Babylon her name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your wisdom, for your Holy Spirit to take the words that you have inspired and apply them deeply into our hearts and minds. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is a really interesting passage of Scripture for various reasons, and it also seems a little bit strange to us in the light of the New Testament. Uh, Rejoicing over the destruction of your enemies doesn't seem a particularly Christian thing to do. So just to say up front that Babylon is not just a nation that suffers from megalomania and has abused its power. It's a nation that has taken God's people captive, the people that God has promised to redeem and to use to bless the whole world. And so the promise of Babylon's destruction brings hope and blessing to Israel and, in fact, to the world. In this chapter, God's wrath isn't just negative against sin, but it's positive in that he wants to remove things which prevent his blessing. 
And yes, we pray for our enemies, and we bless those who curse us, but we don't have to be sad when those who oppose God are overthrown. Uh, This week I was reading how the government in Algeria, North Africa, is busy closing down churches and beating and imprisoning Christians. We wouldn't have to be sad if that government were taken down and a new government that gave religious freedom was put in its place. Um, We are allowed uh, to sit back and watch as God uh, intervenes. So to me, the most striking part of this passage is actually the poem or the lament that's taken up for the king of Babylon. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil, on the day that God brings you out of Babylon you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And notice that it is the king of Babylon that's being addressed. Uh, Some people have taken this passage, in fact, I've been guilty of this in the past, and used it to refer to the the fall of Satan. Uh, In particular, verse 12, how you've fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. When the Bible was being translated into Latin, uh, all the way back in 384 A.D., Uh, Jerome, who was doing the translation, took the words morning star and he translated them as a proper name, Lucifer. And then in time, Lucifer was a term that was used for Satan. So there was a bit of circular interpretation that went on. They translated the word as Lucifer. People applied the name Lucifer to the devil and then they used this passage to apply to the origin of the devil. Now, these words are echoed uh, a little bit in the New Testament So, for example, Luke 10, after Jesus' 72 followers have come back from their mission trip, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In the book of Revelation, John tells us how war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So we've got a little bit of an idea of you know, how the evil one turned evil. But Isaiah 14 isn't speaking about that. It's speaking about the king of Babylon. Uh, it's pretty clear. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Having said that, we're not sure exactly which king is being addressed. Um, No actual king fits perfectly, um, and it's tempting to try and guess. So some people have applied this to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was certainly brought down by God. Remember, Daniel tells us about it in Daniel chapter 4. We read that as King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon one day, he said... Is this not the great Babylon I have built up as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? We read that the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. 
King Nebuchadnezzar suffers some kind of mental breakdown. He becomes insane. Uh, Daniel tells us that he was in time restored, though, whereas in Isaiah 14, this king uh, dies. So it's probably not Nebuchadnezzar, but certainly a Babylonian king. Look at how the text describes his downfall. This poem is actually divided into four uh, separate verses. In the first verse, we read about the relief that there is on earth now that this tyrant is dead. And in fact, when you read through the Old Testament, you see what sort of turmoil these great empires caused in the ancient Near East, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Uh, The Assyrians in particular were incredibly cruel. They stamped out any opposition with such force that all of the rest of the nations were frightened into submission. But now that this tyrant is dead, things are very different. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down the peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even nature itself rejoices. There are some interesting relief sculptures in the British Museum that show how the Assyrian kings showed off their power by hunting lions until they decimated the lion population. Not just in our own day that that kind of thing takes place. Their huge construction projects would decimate the ancient forests. But now nature itself rejoices in this king's downfall. Even the pine trees and the cedars of Lebanon exult over you and say, now that you've been laid low, no woodsman comes to cut us down. Verse 2 moves from earth to under the earth. Sheol, the place of the dead. The grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. And then we have this eerie scene described for us as the king of Babylon enters the place of the dead. And all these shadowy figures of previous kings stand up in his presence. But they don't do it out of respect. They do so out of amazement as they discover that despite this man's power and majesty, he's actually mortal. And now he's dead. All those who were leaders in the world rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations, they'll all respond. They'll say to you, you've become weak as we are. You've become like us. The Bible commentator John Oswald says this about these verses. He says, the terrible king who had dispatched so many of them to death is in fact no different than they. Although his glory had made him seem almost immortal. He too must bow to corruption and decay. They rise as though to do homage, but instead they mock him by reminding him that in the sight of death, all human distinctions are meaningless. And then in the next verse, you've got this dual picture. It's almost as if you're seeing two screens. Above the earth, there is this huge state funeral service with all the parade and the gilt chariots and the military band and the beautiful funeral requiem. But at the same time, under the earth, there's a very different scene that plays out. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. 
Now, we do know a little bit more about death and the afterlife from the New Testament. This isn't the final picture, but what this picture does is that it reminds us that death is the great leveler. Let me quote Oswald again. Isaiah says that all human pride is just pretty trappings on a corpse. The worms bring all of us, mighty and helpless alike, to the same level. So we move from earth uh, to under the earth, and then the third stanza takes us all the way up into heaven itself, because this is where this man had aimed for. His intent was to reach the very top. In the words of Star Trek, to boldly go where no man had gone before. But this high aspiration simply makes his downfall all, more, all that more spectacular. How you've fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I'll ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. We return then to the earth in the fourth verse. Despite all his wealth and majesty and power, this man is helpless in the face of death. One of the worst things that could happen to you in the ancient Near East was that you would die and not receive a proper burial. And this seems to be the fate of this man. He's pictured as being killed on the battlefield. Uh, those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb, but you're cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You're covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You'll not join them in burial, for you've destroyed your land and killed your people. And another thing that often happened in the ancient Near East was that when one king died or when one dynasty came to an end, the new king would just wipe out any reference to that king. They would rewrite the history books. They would tear down the sculptures. Um, they would just make sure that his name was completely forgotten. And that seems to be the fate of this man as well. The offspring of the wicked will never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his sons for the sins of their forefathers. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. It's an incredible poem. It uh, reminds me of Percy Shelley's poem, Ozymandias. Do you remember it? Uh, the poem tells about a traveler who goes into the desert, and there he sees a broken statue lying in the sand. All that is left is a pair of feet and a face in the sand and, and a pedestal. And on the pedestal are written these words, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. <laughs> Just the irony of that once impressive statue now lying in the dirt. Well, it's a stunning piece of Hebrew poetry that comes to us from 2,700 years ago. What in the world does it have to do with us? Well, this passage beautifully expresses in poetic form what the Bible goes on to say in prose. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Peter's actually quoting the book of Proverbs at this point. So clearly God thought this was important for us. He's put it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, while the passage does refer to a particular king, it broadens its reference a little bit at the end. Because God says, I'll rise up against them, declares the Lord. I will cut off from Babylon her name and her survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. So the chapter isn't just referring to an individual, but to an entire nation who raises itself up against God. And there have been many such nations and individuals who've existed since Isaiah's time in the past. Uh, They still exist today, and they will exist in the future. In the book of Revelation, in fact, the Apostle John uses the picture of Babylon to refer to, he kind of uses it as a symbol, rather, to refer to any nation or empire that raises itself up against God. Revelation 18, after this I saw another angel coming from heaven with a mighty voice he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. Now this couldn't be referring to the original or literal kingdom of Babylon because that had been destroyed by the Persians back in 539 B.C., John seems to be referring to Rome and the fall of the Roman Empire. But as a prophet, he's looking even beyond Rome to kingdoms that will come in the future, that will rise and fall. Think, for example, of Hitler's Third Reich. It was supposed to last for a thousand years, lasted for 12 years, was responsible for the death of 60 million people. Think of other dictators and other empires, Joseph Stalin's, Soviet Union, or Idi Amin's Uganda, Pol Pot's Cambodia. And of course, this passage isn't simply about Babylon or Rome or Nazi Germany. This is a passage about me, and it's a passage about you. Because pride isn't simply found in nations or dictators, it's found in every human heart. What is pride? Well, I think the attitude of the Babylonians is very succinctly summarized a little bit later on in the book of Isaiah, chapter 47, because twice in that chapter, we have Babylon pictured as saying, I am, and there is none beside me. That's the heart of pride, seeing only myself, I am, and there is no other Don Miller puts it this way in his book, Blue Like Jazz. Seven billion people live on the face of this planet, and I have thoughts only for one, me. Or as another writer puts it, how do I love me? Let me count the ways. (laughs) Pride is probably made up of an unholy trinity of vanity, stubbornness, and exclusion. Vanity. A preoccupation with myself and my appearance and my image. You know, when the end of year office photograph comes out, or when the school yearbook is published, or when there's a Facebook post of an event that we've been to, whose photo do we look for first? (laughs) Whose face are we looking for first? Pride also involves stubbornness. Stubbornness is pride that makes us refuse to be corrected. When someone points out an error or a flaw, we evade or we deny or we blame someone else. Thirdly, pride involves exclusion. 
I think this is the deadliest element because, uh, because we fill our universe, there's no place for others. And often there's no place even for God. In fact, as we've seen, pride causes us to think that we are, in fact, God. You might remember that that was the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Remember the serpent coming to Eve and saying, you won't die if you eat the fruit from the forbidden tree. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That was the temptation to push God out, to usurp God's place, to be like God. And human beings, you and me, have been doing that ever since. I wonder if you're even in that position this morning. You came along to church for whatever reason, but actually you're very far from God. You just have left God for ages. You've just been in charge of your own little universe. We'll see in a moment that there is a way to come back. How, how do we combat pride in our lives? Well, Peter gives us some steps in that passage I referred to a few moments ago. He says, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due, in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So there are a couple of practical steps the first is a mindset. We remind ourselves that God opposes the proud. And if we forget it, we can read Isaiah chapter 14. To be proud is to be fundamentally at odds with the purposes of God for my life. You know, Babylon may say, I am, and there is none beside me. But in Isaiah 45, God says, there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. We allow God to be God in our lives, and then we don't have to be anxious about our so-called reputation or name because God cares for us, and we are safe with him. Secondly, I believe Peter gives us a motivation for humility. He says that God gives grace to the humble. There's a motivation for humility. If I'm humble, I'm able to receive a measure of grace from God that I cannot otherwise receive. You see, it's only the humble who can receive anything at all from God. The proud can't accept anything because they have no sense of neediness. Those who are proud forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jesus explained this in a very wonderful story. And the context of the story is the context of pride. Luke 18 to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you're far away from God this morning, here's the way back doesn't involve saying, God, you've got a great candidate here. 
simply involves recognizing who God is and who we are and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, does humility mean constantly looking down at the ground and never accepting a compliment from anyone? I don't think so. I love the way Archbishop William Temple defines humility. He once said, Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself one way or the other. One of his books, Pastor John Altberg, speaks about a healthy self-forgetfulness. He says, we'll know that we've begun to make progress in humility when we find that when we are with others, we're truly with them, not wondering how they can be of benefit to us. I remember reading about a group of nursing students um, who had, were, had, had been in lectures for six months, and they came to their first exam. And the last question on the exam really stumped them. It said, what is the first name of the lady who cleans the school? The question was worth 50 marks. All of the students had seen the cleaning lady just about every day. She was tall, dark-haired, in her 50s. But how were they supposed to know her name? Before the class ended, one of the students asked the professor, is this going to count towards our end mark? And the professor said, absolutely. In your careers, you will meet many people. All are significant. They deserve your attention and care, even if all you do is smile and say hello. Those students never forgot that lesson. They also learned the lady's name was Dorothy. (laughs) But thirdly, Peter gives us a method, an action step. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So interesting in this passage, if we don't humble ourselves, then God is going to humble us. So while humbling ourselves might not sound particularly uh, fun, it sure beats having God humbling us. And if we humble ourselves, then God says, well, he'll lift us up in due time. And then Peter specifically tells us how to humble ourselves. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. In other words, humility is practiced in our relationships with each other. But again, how? Well, not through direct effort. If we think to ourselves, I am now, trying, I am now going to be humble, uh, we probably won't get there. <laughs> we have to do this indirectly. And the way to cultivate humility in life is through the indirect action of service. Uh, some of you uh, may remember the American president, Jimmy Carter, I can only remember as far back as Reagan. That was my first American president. But Jimmy Carter was the president before Reagan from 1977 to 1981. So if you remember him, you're showing your age. He served for one term, and then he endured the humiliation of losing the next election by a landslide to Ronald Reagan and then being shunned by his own political party and his friends. Jimmy Carter could have spent the rest of his life playing golf, Uh, or doing the television show circuit, as many previous presidents had done. But he didn't. He chose to do something very different with the rest of his life. He works for Habitat for Humanity, building houses for poor people who can't afford homes of their own. He's gone all over the world advocating peace. In 2002, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. 
He's 95 years old and is still building houses. In fact, I think he was in the news two days ago because he and his wife have been married longer than any other presidential couple, over 73 years. Years ago, Pastor George MacDonald spent uh, one of his holidays uh, working for Habitat for Humanity, and he just happened to be working on a project where Jimmy Carter was working. And this is what he wrote about that experience. He said, some years ago, Gail and I had the opportunity to spend a week working on a Habitat for Humanity project in Hungary. Former President Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind were assigned to the house being built right next to the one we were working on. It gave me a good chance to glance over every once in a while to see what the former president was doing. He never seemed to stop working. He arrived before anyone else. He toured the 10 homes that were being constructed and arranged for subtle adjustments in the delivery of supplies so that no one work crew on any one of the 10 homes got ahead of the others, creating an unnecessary competitive climate. He made it clear to fellow construction workers that he was there to work and would not have time to visit with rubbernecks. If people desired to take pictures, that, he said, would have to wait until the project was finished. At mealtimes, we all gathered in a huge feeding tent. I noted that President Carter always took a place at the end of the line for the food table. He used the same portable bathrooms everyone else used. He stayed in the same housing that all of us endured. Throughout the week, it was clear that he resisted any special privileges to which he might have been entitled. In such ways, I watched President Carter discipline his ego. We, too, can tame our egos by quietly and secretly serving others. John Ortberg refers to this as the ministry of the mundane. You know, just doing regular, uh, sometimes little acts of service preferably in a way that other people don't see them. Letting another driver go ahead of us on the road. <laughs> when I've got a huge trolley full of groceries, letting someone who's got just a small basket go in front of me in the queue, and then they have to pay with credit card and need three supervisors and all of that. <laughs> Making a work colleague a cup of coffee, uh, secretly washing up the dishes uh, at the office, Getting up first for the baby at night instead of pretending to be asleep. You know who you are. Picking up litter when no one sees me. Cleaning a toilet. Picking up dog poo. We can do those little acts of service on a regular basis to remind ourselves that we're not the center of the universe. And then we don't feel proud about them. <laughs> so there's a wonderful passage in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, it's a fictional book consisting of letters written from a senior devil, Screwtape, to a junior devil called Wormwood. Uh, it's all about how to tempt Christians, uh, which Wormwood and Screwtape refer to as patience. And in one of the letters, uh, it, it reads like this. My dear Wormwood, I notice that your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them, but this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble, and almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this uh, new form of pride, Make him proud of this attempt. 
and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. (laughs) But after we've got through that stage of being proud about our humility, if we continue to do those acts of service on a regular basis, secretly, hopefully in time, I think it creates humility within us. And humility is no great weight because it's the burden that Jesus himself bore. Remember he said, I am gentle and humble in heart. God is humble. It's his nature. If I want to take on my father's character, then this is one of the characteristics I need to take on. Well, there's so much more that we could say this morning. Uh, Our time is gone. But before we move into our time of communion, I want us to listen to some words from the book of Philippians. They're familiar words to us, but perhaps they've got even greater impact when we read them after Isaiah 14. So let's bow together in prayer, and I'll read these two passages side by side. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others above yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.